Star Wars 7x7 episode 2890. So the Obi-Wan Kenobi series dropped its third episode yesterday, but we haven't even talked about episode one because, of course, it came out during Star Wars Celebration. So, yeah, let's do that and talk about how episode one was heavy on setup, but beautiful in the moments. Punch it! Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy. And thank you so much for joining me for it. So this is the last episode I'm recording in Los Angeles. On the day that I'm recording this Wednesday, June 1st, I will be flying... assuming I don't get my flight canceled again like the way out here. I'll be flying back home to New Hampshire and looking very much forward to it. It's been a whirlwind adventure, but it's time to go home. It's time to go home. So, But speaking of whirlwind adventures, let's talk about the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. And I've got seven points that I wanted to chat with you about on this first episode. So I'll start with a triple setup, which refers to the fact that we get that opening montage that sums up the prequel trilogy and then we get a scene as a prologue that shows us Order 66 and then we get a scene with the Inquisitors arriving and the Grand Inquisitor monologuing in that saloon. And the more I got to thinking about that, the more I thought, you know what, it kind of has to be like that because probably a significant share of the audience needs the refresher. I mean, you know, the prequel trilogy, Yeah, I mean, we all know, I'm saying we all know, but I'm saying (laughs) Star Wars fans who are kind of soaking in this stuff, we know the story, but it is just beautifully cast the way that they do this, just particularly focused on the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan and how that develops and Obi-Wan's commitment to Qui-Gon Jinn and the follow-through or, you know, failure of the follow-through as it were. And then the Order 66 situation sets up what happens a little bit later in the episode because we need to understand that some Jedi survived Order 66, or at least the general audience needs to remember that some Jedi other than Obi-Wan Kenobi survived Order 66. And then with the Inquisitor monologuing, right? So the Grand Inquisitor is showing up on Tatooine with the third sister and the fifth brother. And the Grand Inquisitor lecturing the saloon keeper about the Inquisitors and what their deal is. And I would say, you know, you know, for a lot of people, they're not familiar with Inquisitors or who they are or what their deal is. You know, it's... It's something like those characters have only been in animation with Star Wars Rebels and in comics and in, of course, Jedi Fallen Order. So, yeah, heavy on the setup for sure. But ultimately, the more I sat with it, the more I thought, yeah, this is kind of necessary, basically, under the circumstances. Then we have our second point, which is the triple refusal of the call. We see Obi-Wan Kenobi is day laboring. Apparently, they're harvesting meat off a giant dead carcass in the middle of the desert, which is crazy. And those refusals come with higher and higher stakes, right? So the first refusal is basically when the worker is gypped of his wages and he could step in, but does not. And then the next one is when he encounters the runaway Jedi in the desert and does not help him and in fact advises him basically quite the opposite to go to town, go back to town and stay hidden, which is, you know, a bad idea, especially considering that he already knew Inquisitors were around anyway, for pity's sake. 
And then the third refusal coming when Brea and Bale call and say, you need to come help Leia, this is a problem. And he just continues to say, I'm not the man I used to be and won't help. And we'll talk about what actually moves him into action a little bit later. The third thing I want to talk about with you is that we get to see Alderaan at its best. And we had moments like that with the ending of Revenge of the Sith. And gosh, I'm trying to think of other things where I've seen Alderaan, but I don't think we've seen it in live action until now. And just how beautiful Alderaan looks. Like, you know, there's that meme that goes around where, you know, it's something like, oh yeah, if you know something happened or something you know went away or something like that, what the world would be like, and it looks like you know some crazy Tomorrowland concept or something like that. Well, that's basically what Alderaan looks like, and it's just stunning. But just the cityscapes, but also the vistas of it, like how they combine them, is just amazing, and also just like a little heartbreaking at the same time because you know what Alderaan's fate is eventually, but how beautiful it is to see Alderaan at its height. And I had heard rumors about there being, you know, both a young boy and a young girl being cast, but, you know, you never know with rumors and whatnot. And of course, Jimmy Smith was never confirmed as a member of the cast either, for that matter, which was just something they were hiding. So I personally was actually a little surprised by the appearance of Alderaan, and it was just, you know, <laughs> it was startling, but like, ah, like just. Oh gosh, I was very happy about that. All right, let's move on to our fourth thing, which is Leia and Lola. Like, this is a great combination. And I do want to say, first of all, Vivian Lyra Blair is the actress who plays Leia. And I think it's kind of an amazing little coincidence that Lyra is her middle name because that's, of course, the name of Jyn Erso's mother in Rogue One. And I thought that was just kind of a, a weird little serendipitous coincidence. So she does really well, and I'm aware, though I haven't seen any of this, I've seen people saying that it's terrible that people are you know, complaining about her or something like that, but I've not actually seen anyone actually complaining about her online, and I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> I think that means I've managed to tune out a lot of folks that I would like to tune out, <laughs> basically. but. You know, the challenge is that when you have a character who is precocious, which is exactly what Leia should be at this age, you're going to give that character dialogue that goes, you know, above and beyond what they would be saying at their grade level, basically. So, you know, this is heightened stuff, right? Like, this is not reality. Most 10-year-olds are not going to be rattling off things about... <laughs> very deep insights into some kid's father and being scared and stuff like that. Like, yeah, that's not going to happen over the course of life. But this is exactly who Leia needs to be as a character. And yeah, it did not bother me at all that she went off on that monologue <laughs> on her cousin and her refusal to apologize and saying she'd rather be eaten by a jack of beast Like, yeah. I loved it, honestly. I really think they captured the character. I do. And Lola, like, what another little endearing robot that Star Wars has managed to create, that Lucasfilm has managed to create, right? We got a brief look at Lola in the trailers and whatnot or in commercials, but yeah, fully realized Lola is good fun, and where Lola is packing a buzzsaw in all of that equipment is pretty darn impressive. 
For a fifth thing, I want to talk about the father-daughter dynamic between Bale and Leia. And first of all, just want to give props to the beautiful moment where Bale and Leia you know, connect over the fact that you know she says that she's not a real Organa because of the way that she was talked to by her cousin and how he so strongly emphasizes that she's an Organa in every way that matters. And yeah, that just, it gave me chills and I get like a little emotional over that. Um, you know, there is adoptive stuff in my own family. My mother was adopted. So yeah, it's something that it matters and it's just, it's, it's beautiful. I really felt very, you know, emotional about that moment. But even beyond my own personal reaction <laughs> to that, I would also say that, you know, it is that father-daughter dynamic that becomes more crucial as the rebellion begins to form and begins to grow and gets to that, you know, breakthrough point when the events of A New Hope happen. And it's Bale actually you going around, I think it was in the Leia Princess of Alderaan novel by Claudia Gray, when Leia actually discovers that Bale is doing you know secret activities for the Rebellion. Obviously the Rebellion hasn't quite formed yet at this point, but I mean, I think just these general seeds of it are just starting to happen in other places in the galaxy. And so we see the setting up of the father-daughter relationship and just how strong and casual it is. And yeah, this is exactly how it should be developing. So I thought that was beautifully done too. All right, for a sixth thing, and I know I've been asked about this a time or two, but when I initially talked about the Kenobi series and the first opening, like I just mentioned that there's a plot hole that you know seems to exist for me, and maybe plot hole isn't quite necessarily the the phrase that I want to use. Maybe it's plot logic, I guess. I don't know. But essentially, the thing that was bugging me is that when the Inquisitors arrive in that saloon, they actually find a Jedi. And yes, I know there's the, you know, dynamic between the Grand Inquisitor and Reva. And so, you know, they have to set that up and whatnot. But the fifth brother goes out after the Jedi. And it's not like Nari, you know, did something amazing to like disable all the three of them. No, he just managed to sneak away and made a couple of awnings drop and then ran through the town, right? So the fifth brother goes stalking after him, but how is it that they didn't just catch him right there? I mean, they came all the way, three Inquisitors came all the way to Tatooine looking for this one Jedi and they just let him run through the town and escape out into the Dune Sea. That seemed particularly unlikely to me for all the effort that they went to to go track this kid down. And I know why the creators of the show had to do that, why they had to let him escape because he has to go see Obi-Wan later on and Obi-Wan has to have another refusal of the call moment and that's fine. But yeah, he escaped so easily comparatively and got all the way out into the Dune Sea even though those Inquisitors came all that way for him and did not relentlessly pursue him. Yeah, that just, you know, was like, eh, I don't know about that. And incidentally, related to that, I'll just flag something that 
I have not watched episode three yet, but it's a thing that seems to be happening in episode one and episode two, so we'll have to see if something like this happens in three. But there are callback moments, like in this particular episode when Obi-Wan tells Nari to go out into the Dune Sea and bury his lightsaber and then you know go back to town and stay hidden and whatnot. Of course, that's exactly what Obi-Wan did, so there's a callback later where he goes out into the middle of the desert and digs up the lightsabers that he's buried, both Anakin's and and Obi-Wan's. And then the final thing has to do with what actually moves Obi-Wan Kenobi forward. So this is one of the biggest challenges in, you know, creative writing in general, like the the art of persuasion, like how do you convincingly make somebody go from a no to a yes? in something, right? Because it has to feel legitimate, it has to feel real. It can't be somebody saying no, and then somebody saying, but I want you to do this, and then the person saying, okay, I guess I will. Like, you know, it has to feel earned in some way. Like, you have to give enough incentive for the person to actually turn against their own resolve and do it. And so seeing Nari having been captured and killed by the Inquisitors, and then having Bail Organa come personally to visit Obi-Wan to beg him to get involved, like that is, you know, that ultimately is what gets him finally moving forward. I would say that, you know, if Bail had just shown up and begged, like Obi-Wan probably would have sent him away as well. But the fact that he saw Nari killed and then had Bail, like I think the one-two punch of that definitely felt for me like it was enough to turn his direction around. And that's about it for just, you know, the episode itself. I mean, apropos of nothing, there was just one other thing that just really got me, which was the appearance of Flea as the main kidnapper. Flea is, of course, the bass player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and there was a Beavis and Butthead episode once upon a time, and they were watching a Red Hot Chili Peppers video, and Beavis started yelling, Flea! 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 In the middle of, of that, and so, of course, the moment he appears on screen in the Kenobi series, like, all I hear in my head is, Flea! 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 So, yeah, <laughs> that happened too. Uh, all right, so there you go. That is the spoiler level breakdown of episode one of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, and that is going to do it for this episode of the show. It just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it, as always, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. Is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and/or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited. Other respective trademark and copyright holders may the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2021 by Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.